I want to begin our time together this morning by asking a question, and that is this. Do you want courage? Do you want courage? You know, the Bible is full of all sorts of people who model for us what courage actually looks like. In fact, we have a plethora of people through Scripture, both men and women alike, that, that show us what courage looks like and that give us something that's worthy of emulation. Think about the guy by the name of Daniel. Many of you know Daniel's story. King Darius issued a decree that no one could pray to Yahweh, that no one could pray to God. And you have Daniel, who is now perplexed. He has a decision to make. Does he continue to obey the Lord Jesus and pray to Yahweh, or does he follow the king's decree? And the king went so far to say that if you pray to God within the next 30 days, you will be thrown into a fiery or into a lion's den. And what did Daniel do? Daniel, in courage, decided to pray and obediently obey the Lord Jesus. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We talked about a fiery furnace, or I accidentally said it just a second ago, right? What was their story? They too had a king that told them that they had to bow down to a golden image. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are now in the decision that they have to make. Do they bow down to the golden image as the king has told them to do? Or do they obey the Lord's commands of not making any image other than him and worshiping any image other than him and continue to bow down only to the one true God? What did they do? Well, they courageously obeyed the Lord God. And as a result of their obedience, they were thrown into a fiery furnace. The Bible is full of stories like the think of Queen Esther. God gave her and elevated her to a position as a as a queen, but even for her as a queen to go before the king and to rebuttal him was a dangerous, dangerous act. And the king had issued a decree that all the Jews should be terminated. And what did Queen Esther have to do? She had to go fight for her people. And she went to Mordecai, her cousin, and she told Mordecai what? She said, hey, listen, this could mean that I'm going to perish. This could mean that I'm going to die. But I've got to go before the king and I've got to fight for my people. And she did. And courage, she went before him, knowing that the verdict could be her own death. Think about Peter, New Testament. Peter, to step out of a boat and to try to walk on liquid. You try that. It doesn't go very well, but in courage, Peter steps out of the boat and tries to walk on water. Think about Deborah, before she went and fought. Think about Jesus. The Bible is full of men and women all throughout. Think about Hannah, like full of men and women all throughout Scripture who, who give us, who model for us courage, especially courage that's worthy of our emulation. So I want to go back to that question. Do you want courage? You know, courage, I would say, is an attribute that everyone wants. In fact, without courage, you won't leap for faith. You'll have no leap of faith with the absence of courage. Courage gives you the ability to take a risk in life. Courage allows you to at least attempt the unthinkable. Courage allows you to step beyond the borders of mediocrity and to try something that only courageous people would ever try. Courage involves sacrifice. In Scripture, in the Bible, you and I read story after story after story of men and women who were courageous. In fact, every single fairy tale that we read to our kids 
is a fairy tale that's built around one climax and one uh, context, and that is a courageous hero that typically prevails in the story. From ancient myths to modern-day Hollywood movies, they're filled with this word, courage. In fact, I would say that our culture, the culture that you and I live in, is full of stories of bravery, stories of self-sacrifice, and stories even of courage. Billy Graham, the late Billy Graham, said it best. He said that courage is contagious. That when you find one man who is courageous, you'll find another man just like him because it's contagious. And what I want to do today is I want to help you become the courageous man or woman that God intended for you to become. And I'm hoping that the courage that you step into will then bleed out of you onto other people. Maybe in your household, maybe at your workplace, maybe in your neighborhood. But no doubt that the courage that you step into will not stay here. That it will actually leak out of you and rub off on others around you. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, we're going to be in chapter 17. That's the ninth book of the Old Testament, 1 Samuel. We're uh, stepping into week three now of our sermon series, The Broken King. We've been looking at the story of King David. And I told you before that this is not an exhaustive study. We're looking at snapshots of David's life. And today we're coming to probably the most infamous story in all of the Old Testament. And today is the story of David and Goliath. David and Goliath. So today is a story that many of you are well familiar with, but if I could say so myself, many of you have taken this story out of its context and tried to use it in a way that God never intended for it to be used. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. So we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 17. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. We're actually going to read a lot of this together today. Majority of this chapter is going to be read today. But what we're going to do is we're going to pause along the way, and then I'm going to end with three different examples of courage that you see in this text of Scripture, and then we're going to talk about why this story exists to begin with. Okay, that's where we're headed today. So let's read in 1 Samuel chapter 17. The Word of God says this, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. So right right out of the gate, we need to stop and we need to answer this question. Who are the Philistines? For some of you, you're well familiar with the Philistines. You paid attention in history class, world history, specifically for people like me. I failed that in the seventh grade. It was the only subject I failed. Um, So I paid little to no attention to it. So if you're like me, we have to catch ourselves up a little bit. So who are the Philistines. Well, the Philistines were a pain in the neck to the people of Israel for over 200 years. In fact, they tried to bully the Israelites throughout the entire history of their lives. They were people that were living in Canaan, and when God gave the land to Israel, these people just would not go away, okay? They were like gnats in South Georgia. I mean, you can blow them and try to get rid of them, but they're just going to keep coming back, right? That's who the Philistines were. Now, the Philistines, they were powerful, and they were strong. They were a force to be reckoned with in an age called the Iron Age. And the reason that they were a force to be reckoned with is because the Philistines were innovative thinkers, and they learned how to use steel and iron to make weaponry and to make uh, tools uh, that, that would help them in war. So that's what they got their name for. So this gave them an advantage over their enemies. It gave them not even a slight advantage, a real advantage over their enemies because they were the only ones who knew how to use steel uh, for weaponry and war. So they were leaps and bounds beyond others in that regard. Now let's look at verse 3. 
It says, And the Philistines, they stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, and there was a valley between them. So what's going on here, and again, if you're going to Israel, you're going to see exactly where this took place. But what's going on here is on one side of the mountain, you have the Philistines. And on the other side of the mountain, you have the Israelites. And you have a valley that stretches about a mile wide down between these two mountains that they're standing on. The valley here is referred to as no man's land. The reason they referred to that valley as no man's land, because if any man were to enter it, he would surely die. So the valley was referred to as no man's land. But there was one person from the Philistines who was bold enough. In fact, I would say that there was one person who was courageous enough to step into that valley. And that was a guy by the name Goliath. Goliath. Look at verse 4. It says, And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion, a bad dude, named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Some commentators will tell you that this equates to nine feet, six inches. Others will tell you that this equates to six feet, nine inches. We don't really know. We don't have actually his birth certificate or any other certificates that tell us exactly how tall he was, but we can assume that he was 6'9 or above, okay? That's what we can assume. It's safe to start there and to go up. But what we do know is that David was a little runt and that David was only 5 feet 3 inches tall. So regardless of if he's 6'9 or if he's 9'6, he's still a giant comparatively to David. It says this in verse 5, And he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. Okay, now this coat of mail is not like all of his old Christmas cards that he had just collected and made a coat out of. Like, that's not what a coat of mail is. Instead, it's a steel meshing, okay? So he has a steel meshing that he's putting on his body, body to defend himself with. So, so if he was attacked or if he was, uh, you know, tried to be poked or prodded or anything like that, he has a steel jacket on him. It's a metal meshing. It says, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs, and he had a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. When you see a word over and over and over again in Scripture, you have to ask yourself, why is that word being emphasized? Why is that word there? And what you see here is in verse 5. It says there was bronze on his head. In verse, or, and it says he had, it weighed a thousand shekels of bronze. And in verse 6, he had bronze armor on his legs, a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. You see this word bronze being used over and over and over again. All it's doing is stressing the reality that the Philistines were the first and really the only people to use metal. So this was innovative. This is what set them apart from the Israelites. The Israelites were fighting with what leather and rocks, while the Philistines are fighting with steel and bronze and metal. It's like, it's like comparing a modern-day NFL football player who's big, who's like strung out on performance-enhancing drugs, right? Most of them. Um, I'll just say that, assuming. Um, but not only that, but, but they have all this gear. Now, they have Rydell helmets, and they have these shoulder pads, they have these knee pads, none of them wear knee pads anymore, so that's a thing of the past. But they have all this gear on them. And if you were to put him up against a football player from the 1920s, you can almost assure yourself that, that this dude over here, the modern-day guy, is going to win, right? 
because usually the 1920 guys they don't even look like they ever worked out. They had leather helmets. They didn't have anything really protecting them. This guy has everything protecting them. You can imagine what that would look like. That's essentially what's going on here. And in verse 7, it says, The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. So you got Goliath, who's all dressed up and decked out. He's big enough as it is, but he has all this bronze and metal on him. He's got a shield, he's got a spear, he's got a javelin, he's got all this stuff. And then in front of him is this little guy who's a shield bearer, who's there, quote, protecting. That's what the Bible's telling you. In verse 8, he stood and shouted to the ranks, talking about Goliath of Israel. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be servants of yours. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. This is called representative warfare. There's one person that represents and fights on behalf of the entire army, and as such, they go fight, and, and whoever wins, the battle belongs to the entire army. So if you have one representative from the Philistines, and if you have one representative from the Israelites, and they fight each other, and the Philistines win, then the Philistines are saying, forever, Israel, you'll serve us. If the Israelite wins, then forever, the Philistines, you'll serve us. It's called representative warfare. And what we learn in verse 16 is that Goliath has been taunting the Israelites, the Bible tells us, for 40 days. Literally, he would wake up in the morning and go to bed at night, and the entire space in between was filled of him taunting the Israelites. It says from morning, breakfast time, to night, around dinner time, is what commentators assume. So you can imagine the Israelites. They get up in the morning, they go to their pantry, they take out their oatmeal, and they begin to stir in the hot water. And while they're stirring in the hot water their oatmeal, they hear him out there taunting. Give me a man that will come and fight against me. Give me a man that will come and fight against me. And this goes on all day long until literally it's dinner time and they finish their meal. They put up their pita bread and they're washing their dishes. And finally they will hear that start to fade away because he's starting to rest. For 40 solid days. You're talking about a good life. That's what he did. Verse 10 says, this is what he shouted. Give me a man that we may fight together. And then in verse 11, it says, when Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, it says, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. If you highlight, if you underline, that's a phrase that you'll want to remember. The result of this Philistine giant standing in the valley asking for someone to come who might dare come and fight him, the result of the Israelite army was that they were dismayed and they were greatly afraid. Now, meanwhile, back at the farm, you have Jesse, who was David's dad, tell David, hey, David, I want you to go find your brothers, and I want you to take them a sack lunch. We talked about this a little bit last week, and that's exactly what he does. Jesse puts in uh, David's book bag some Lunchables, preferably the pizza ones, because those are the best, with a wild cherry capri. Those are the best ones. And, and the Oreo, always get the ones with the cookie, right? Uh, so he puts those Lunchables in the bag, and he sends David, take the lunch to your brothers. And that's what we'll see. We're going to pick up in verse 20. Okay, it says this. It says, And David rose early in the morning, and he left the sheep with a keeper. Right? Now, if you think people who leave their dog with a dog sitter are crazy, 
it's biblically justified because David hired a sheep sitter here. And it says, and he took the provisions, the sack lunch, and went as his dad or as Jesse had commanded him. So what is David doing? David here is doing typical teenager stuff. He's running errands. His father has told him to take a lunch to his brothers, and that's exactly what he is going to do. The question is, is where are the brothers? Well, the brothers are standing in the battle line on one side of the mountain. You have the Philistines over here. You have the Israelites over here. And you have the brothers in this battle line shouting at the Philistines. Now keep reading. It says this, And David came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. Now this sounds a bit ridiculous. Because what you have is essentially, maybe some of you remember this, in 2006 there was a movie that was put out about uh, two high school cheerleading squads called Bring It On. Okay, Some of you may have read, if you haven't seen it, don't go watch it, it's not worth it. Um, but if, if you have, you'll know what I'm talking about. What's the, what's the, whole, like, the whole main storyline in that entire movie, right? You have these one cheerleading squad, high school cheerleading squad over here, you have another cheerleading squad over here, you have the captains that are talking to each other, and one of the captains says, hey, bring it on. And the other one says, well, it's already been brought, right? <laughs> and that's basically what's happening with Israel and the Philistines, okay? You got the Israelites who are saying, well, bring it on. You got the Philistines who are like, well, it's already been brought. And they're pointing at King Day or at, at Goliath. And at this moment, the Israelites recognize that we probably should just dip out and go because we're not going to win this battle. So that's kind of what's happening here. But the question that we should be asking in this story at this point is this. Where is Saul? Where is Saul? If Saul is supposed to be their king, where is he at when his people are ready for battle on the front lines? So David runs to his brothers, as his dad says, and look at verse 23. It says, As David talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. What were the words that he spoke before? Give me a man that will fight with me. Give me a man that will fight with me. He's doing this all day long. Give me a man that will fight with me. But this time something different happened. This time David, who was there to drop off a sack lunch for his brothers, heard him say, give me a man that he'll fight with me. And in verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him and were much afraid. So the author is wanting to paint this picture for you back in verse 11 and here in verse 24, that when the Israelites heard the taunts of this man, their reaction to the taunts of this man was that they were dismayed and they were greatly or much afraid. Now verse 26, and David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is the uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David says, I have two simple questions, and I would love for someone to answer these questions. Question number one is, what is the reward for the man who takes care of this? Like, if, if someone comes in and takes care of this dude, like, what's the reward for that? And then second, who is the fool that is running his jaw about God? Those are the two questions, and the first question is answered in verse 25. They answer it in three different ways. The first reward for the man who takes care of this is this. First, you'll be rich. Okay, so you'll be rich, you'll be wealthy, you'll be affluent. It says in verse 25, the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches. Okay, well that's enticing. 
If someone takes care of this, they'll now be affluent. They'll have all the wealth in the world. They'll be rich. But is there anything more than that? Well, there's a second thing. There's a second reward. Not only will you be rich, but you'll get to marry the king's hot daughter. That's what the scripture says. It says, and he will give him his daughter. So now not only are you rich, but you got a hot wife. Okay, so that sounds like a great reward to go and take care of this problem. But there's a third reward. Not only will you be rich, and not only will you get to marry the king's hot daughter, but third, you'll never have to pay taxes again. And all the adults said, amen and amen. Listen, who cares about riches and hot women? At this point, if we don't have to pay taxes, sign me up, right? I'm ready to go fight. But it says in the scriptures, and make his father's house free in Israel. So that's the reward. If you take care of this problem, you'll be rich, you'll be married to the king's daughter, and you'll never pay taxes again. But the second question makes all the difference in the world. First, what's the reward? We talked about that. Second, who is the fool that's running his jaw about God? I mean, who is this guy that's out there mocking the living God? So when everyone else is scared to death to go to battle with this giant, what does David do? David assumes victory. He assumes victory. David understands that they aren't really servants of Saul. David understands that they are servants of the living God. So when the people saw the giant as unbeatable, David saw the giant as uncircumcised, and they're different. See, David assumes victory in this passage. He never even hints at the possibility of defeat. It's faith. It's believing and trusting the promises and the character of God. His logic is simple. If God has already promised us victory over the Philistines, all we have to do is go and fight because the victory belongs to us and not them. It's that simple to David. See, God has always been faithful, church family. And for many of you, you do indeed face certain giants in and, and through your own life. And you too have to cling in, face, in the face of those giants to the promises of God. That you have a God who will indeed prevail. And his character will never change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So that's what's going on here. And in verse 28, it says, Now Eliab, his eldest brother, you remember Eliab, right? He was charming. He was chiseled. We talked about him being addicted to Bowflex. Like this dude was just... Uh, he was just well manicured. That's who he was. Um, it says, when he heard, uh, when his, his eldest brother heard when he spoke to the man, and Eliab, his anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? I mean, listen to the insults of Eliab to his brother. He says, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Older brother looks at younger brother and says, why are you even here? Why, what does this dealing have to do with you? And by the way, aren't you supposed to be a nobody out there tending sheep in a field? Like, who's, who's doing that while you're here? Let me talk about this for just a little bit. And then he says, I know your, or your presumption of, of, and the evil in your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Let me talk about what's going on here for just a second, because I think it plagues the church in many, many different ways. What you see here in Eliab is the typical behavior of bitter people. The typical behavior of bitter people. In Eliab's mind, he should be the king. 
He's the oldest son. He's good looking. He fits the script. The outward appearance of what he has to offer is what the people probably wanted. He should be the king. And quite frankly, he's a bit bitter at the fact that he wasn't chosen. And you can see it in the way that he's insulting his brother even here. Eliab's not being supportive. Instead, what does he become? He becomes a tool of discouragement. Listen to me, church family. Often, the most discouraging opposition can come from the people of God. You hear me? Often, in your life and in my life, the greatest opposition, the most discouraging opposition, can and will come from the people of God. It's not like Goliath alone isn't, big, isn't a big enough obstacle on his own here. I mean, he's already up against a giant. But now David has his own brother and his brother's bitterness to deal with. So here's a group of God's people. They're enjoying the promised land that God gave them, and yet their belief in God is now faltering. Their belief in God is now faltering. What I want to do real quick, kind of as a way of doing this parenthetically, I want to talk to you real quick about the importance of dealing with bitterness in your heart. Because what you don't want to become is a source of discouragement to what God might want to do in the life of a brother or sister in Christ. And for some of you, you know that you have some bitter people in your life who become sources of encouragement that keep you from doing what God has called you to do in and through your own life. Listen, church, bitterness erodes optimism. Bitterness erodes optimism. If, if there's anything good in the story at all, bitterness will absolutely kill it and crush it. Not only does bitterness erode optimi optimism, but bitterness also shatters joy. It's hard to find joyfully good, bitter people. Like all of a sudden, when they get bitter, their joy starts to dissipate. And not only that, but the joy of the people around them start to dissipate as well. Have you ever noticed that? So bitterness shatters joy. It erodes optimism, but it also kills our ability to love other people. Have you ever noticed that all of a sudden when you get bitter or you're dealing with a bitter person, they no longer give other people the benefit of the doubt? They no longer assume the best about their brother or sister in Christ. Instead, they assume the worst, and they start pointing fingers, and they start making up stories, and they start painting their story the way that they see it rather than trying to really figure out what the truth of the problem is. You know we have bitter people in the church. You, you know you might have bitter people in your home, neighborhood, workplace, among your friend group. You do know that in the face of bitter people, the bitter person can be your giant, and God wants to free you today to know that you can go before your giant and stand firm on his word, and that you will have victory there because he's already promised that to you. Listen, the Bible tells us in Ephesians 4, chapter 31, to put away all bitterness and wrath and anger. What, what bitterness turns into is wrath and anger. In Galatians chapter 5, bitterness and anger and wrath, these things are mentioned as parts of the flesh, not parts of the spirit. But what does Ephesians, what does Paul end with in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 and 32, where he says to put this away? He says, because if you have been forgiven by God, then certainly you are now free to forgive other people. Like, it's a picture of the gospel. 
When you sense bitterness creeping into your life and you choose to obey God and forgive and put bitterness away, it frees you to not only be forgiven by God, but to take the forgiveness that you've received from God and now freely give it to other people who are in need as well. You're damning the gospel. You're holding it back when you choose to do things your own way. So here's a group of people. They're enjoying the promised land, yet their belief in God is faltering. I want to ask you a question this morning. What do you think is more insulting to God? Think about it. Do you think it's more insulting for a giant to blast blasphemous insults at God? Or do you think it's more uh, insulting to God for the people of God to to blasphemously refuse to trust him? I think it's the latter. I honestly think it's the latter. I think for you and I, we have to trust what the Lord wants to do in and through our lives. Verse 29 says, and David said, what have I done now? What is, was it not but a word? David's just saying, don't get, uh, don't get upset with me. He's like, I'm just the deliverer of the message. I'm just here. I just spoke the truth. And then verse 30, it says, and he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. So David's saying, I'm getting resistance from all over. Some of this uh, resistance comes from the inside. Some of this resistance comes from the outside, if you will. But it's coming from all over. Verse 31, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. In verse 33, and Saul said to David, now listen to the pompous tone that comes out of Saul's mouth. You are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. So again, he is plagued with more discouragement. By the way, just so that you all know, this is how we know David's age. He's referred to here as a youth. You had to be the age of 20 to be in the army. He's not in the army, so we know that he's a teen simply by this text. And then in verse 34, it says, But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. But when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. I think that's pretty cool. Like he's basically saying, hey, if this bear, this lion rose against me and started to defeat me, I just snatched that joker by his beard. I went to town on him. And I love how David had the confidence to know that God was going to deliver him. And then verse 36, your servant was struck down or has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them for he has defied the armies of the living God. The question on the table was where in the world did David get this kind of courage? Well, he got it from God. But how did God shape and mold and form David to have this kind of courage? He did it in a field, in a pasture. He didn't prepare him for this moment by sending him to MMA classes or karate classes or any of the likes. He prepared him by putting him in the middle of of a place, I guess an uncommon place in the middle of this pasture. See, real courage is not taught on the battlefield. Real courage is taught in the pasture. And I know it's not fun being in the pasture. It's not cute being in the pasture. Nobody signs up to go be in the pasture. But please hear me well. God develops his people in really unlikely places. That's what you see happening. My challenge to you is maybe God is calling you to embrace the challenges in your life, the experiences that you're walking through right now. 
as God's faithfulness in the middle of your pasture. Maybe he wants you to see something that he's preparing and equipping in you so that you might do in the future. It's time for us to recognize that the lions and the bears in our lives are really the hands of God preparing us for the unthinkable. Exactly what he was doing for David right here. And in verse 37, it says, And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Some commentators say that he gave him his blessing here. Go, and the Lord be with you. Others, ones that actually probably follow more, actually say, No, this is kind of like Saul saying, Hey, just get away from me. I have other things to deal with. You just go and do whatever the Lord told you to do. So however you look at it, the same conclusion is here. David is now going in the name of the Lord. Verse 38, then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested him, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. So Saul's army, he's basically saying it's like an oversized t-shirt. Like this, it swallows me. It doesn't fit me. I'm not going to fight with this armor on. So what does he do? He just decides to get rid of it. In verse 40, then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. Now you can feel at this moment the tension in the story is beginning to brew. The Philistine giant and David are now approaching each other and they're getting ready as representatives of their countries, of their native lands, to go to war. The thing is about to happen in verse 42. And when the Philistines looked and saw David, he disdained him, the Philistine. He disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? We kind of equated David to Ed Sheeran last week. Like, that's what the Philistine is saying. Like, did you really just send Ed Sheeran to fight me? That's kind of crazy. I mean, what is this, a tickle fight, a thumb war? And the Philistine starts to curse David by his gods. And that's what the Bible says. And then in verse 44, the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air, and I'll give your flesh to the beast of the field. So here you have Goliath. He's now challenging David. You can almost hear the Phil Collins song, can't you? I can feel it coming in the air tonight, right? Oh, Lord. Come on. I've been waiting for this moment. Y'all got it? It's going to be stuck in your head now. Yeah. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. David's talking to his daddy. Verse 45, it says, Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. You don't ever see that in the kids' books. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. Watch, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. That's why this story is in the Bible. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Wait for it, it gets better. And that all his assembly, us as a people of God, Israel, may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Twitter, X, whatever you call it, it is blowing up at this moment. 
What David says is about to happen, it's happening for two reasons. The first reason is that the world may know that there is a God. This is gonna happen so that all the earth may know that there truly is a God. And the second reason is that this assembly, Israel, might know how God saves. Look at that last line. He will give you into our hand. Do you not find it interesting that David, who is representing Israel, is not talking in first person? He's saying that that he's gonna be delivered into our hand. Why is that in there? Because this story's not about David. It's about God staying true to his promises to Israel. David is only acting on what he believes that God has already said. And if God has already said it, then God's going to do it. So David's just doing what he believes God wants him to do. Now everyone has out their phone, Instagram is hot, Facebook is live, and this is what happens in verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. He had four more stones in his pocket if the first one didn't work, but the first one worked to perfection, right? So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine. I love this. I mean, just the graphic imagery here. And took his sword and drew it out of the sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way of Sharam, however you say that, as far as Gath and Ekron, and the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in a tent. Now, I don't know Jason Housen, he went and he shot some elk or something. He said he framed it on his door. I doubt they framed this head on their doorposts, but it's a very graphic story. And there's no doubt who won this battle. You got the Philistines fleeing for their lives. You got the Israelites now built with confidence again. And you see how the story ends. But what I want you to see today, real quick, is this text paints three pictures of courage. Three pictures of courage. We're going to go through this really, really quick, okay? The first picture of courage is Saul and Israel. This is known as absent courage. It's courage, but it's absent courage. In verse 11, it says, When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. When they came face to face with something, or should I say someone that was bigger than them, what did they do? They shut down. What is the absence of courage? It's cowardice. You're either courageous or you're a coward. There's no gray area here. And here, they were being cowards. They were filled with fear and chose not to face their fear head on. Saul and all of Israel have lost heart. It says in verse 32, and David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. See, David realized that Israel's heart has failed. They were paralyzed by their fears. And Saul is the king of Israel. But in this text, He's not being kingly at all, is he? See, that's what absent courage looks like. It causes you and I to retreat rather than to progress. It causes you and I to tuck tail and run 
rather than to stand our ground on the word of God and to talk about the truths of God's words. What we do is we remain idle in the face of our giants instead of fighting the giants knowing that God is fighting for us. So the first picture of courage is absent courage. Do you have absent courage in your life today? Maybe God has told you, I want you to share Jesus with your boss, but you are telling and running instead of facing what God has called you to do. Maybe it's time for you to pick up the phone and seek forgiveness or offer forgiveness to a brother or sister in Christ, and it's time for you to start facing your fears head on and quit being paralyzed by them. Are you filled with absent courage today? There's a second kind of courage. The second kind of courage is seen in the picture of Goliath. This is false courage. In many ways, Goliath represents the world's way of dealing with fear. See, the world's philosophy is that you banish fear by looking within. In other words, we find our courage in our own ability, in our own stature, and that's exactly what Goliath was doing. I know how big I am, and I know the weaponry that I have, and I know all the resources that are available to me, so I can fight this in and of my own strength. I'm not dependent on anyone else. That's what false courage looks like. Our confidence becomes dependent on the accolades that we have achieved, the awards that we've won, the degrees that we've obtained, the promotions that we've been given, or the accomplishments that we've made. When quite frankly, none of that flatters the eyes or bats the eyes of God one iota. See, we learn from Goliath that we can be the most decorative people on all the planet and still lack courage where it really matters. Oh man, you can have all the accolades at work that you want, but if you're failing at home, what does that say? oh man, your child can be the best baseball player on the planet, but if you sacrifice church on the altar in the name of Jesus so that you can pursue that perfection, shame on you, dad, and shame on you, mom. We can have courage in every single place that it really doesn't matter, but not have any courage where it matters most, in our homes, in our marriages, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods. But there's a third picture of courage. You have absent courage, you have false courage, and then the third picture is David. This is true courage. When you look at David's life, what is the source of his courage? Well, he tells you in his speech in verse 45, listen, you come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. It was the name of the living God is where David found his courage. That's where his courage originated. He tells us, I'm not fighting for my purposes. I'm fighting that God might be known in all the earth. If God, through the power of the Spirit, can use a shepherd boy in a sling to slay a giant, certainly, church family, he can use you. And certainly, he can use me. See, David realized that the people of God who are supposed to be on mission with God are now sitting safely on the sidelines and afraid to go fight the giant. And David said, enough is enough, church. Enough is enough, Israel. I'm going to step up, and I'm going to do something about it so that the whole world can see that Jesus really is king. And that's what McDonough and Henry County needs. Not a church that is absent in its courage. Not a church that has false courage, but a church that has true courage that's only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So my question is plain and simple. What category do you fall in? When you come face to face with the giants of life, who do you emulate most? Is it Saul and Israel? Is it Goliath? Or is it David? As I close this morning, I want to ask you, can I be brutally honest with you? This is where you say yes or no. I expected you to say yeah. If you said no, then shame on you. Um, I'm going to be brutally honest with you. 
as much as you may want to believe you are David in this story, you are not David in this story. We have believed that from false teaching for far too long. You know who you are in this story? You are Saul and you are Israel. That's who you are in this story. See, in this text, Saul and Israel is a window into our own soul. Soul, you are Israel. Jesus is David. That's who is the hero of the story. See, the greatest giant in our life isn't a bad health report. The greatest giant in our life is not a broken relationship. The greatest giant in your life is not upside down finances. The greatest giant in your life is not a wayward child. The greatest giant in your life is not a lazy spouse. The greatest giant in your life is alienation from God and the penalty we owe because of our sin. And like Israel, you and I stand hopelessly in the face of God's wrath, our greatest giant, and we are doomed and we are destined to eternity apart from him. That's who we are. But there's good news in this story. Jesus is David. He's the hero. He's the courageous one. See, David was small and weak. He was too small to wear the armor. And the Bible tells us that Jesus, when he came to this earth, he became weak for us. David was opposed and abandoned by his own family and friends in the moment of his greatest battle, Goliath. And Jesus was opposed and abandoned by his brothers, his friends, and all of us in the moment of his greatest battle, the cross. David saved Israel from physical defeat and death, yet Jesus saved us from eternal defeat and death. David was a representative and a substitute. He was not just fighting for his people, he was fighting as his people. And church family, Jesus is your great substitute. He didn't just go to the cross to die for you. He went to the cross to die as you. It was your sin that held him there. David saved Israel at the risk of his own life. And Jesus saved us at the cross and the cost of his own life. David is pointing us to Jesus. See, if we stop at David, we leave with inspiration. And that's what every pastor that teaches this wrongly wants you to leave with, to be inspired to go face your giant. But if we stop at Jesus, we don't leave with inspiration, we leave also with imputation. The blood of Jesus being imputed upon us, paying a penalty that we could not pay, doing and going to the cross to die a death that was ours to die. See, Jesus took on defeat of our great Goliath. This gives us the courage to take on all of life's lesser giants. Church, you don't have to fear death because in Christ, death has already lost its sting. Church, you don't have to worry because in Christ, everything is under control by the almighty hand of God. Church, you don't have to fear acceptance and approval from others because you have been accepted and approved by the only one who really matters and his name is Jesus. My question to you this morning is, will you run to him as your courageous one? And until you see how courageous he was for you, you'll never be able to be courageous like he was. If the world's gonna see us as courageous, it begins by knowing who was already courageous for, courageous for us.